Welcome to 27 Speaks, a weekly podcast with the staff of the Express News Group who share their insights into the latest stories making news on the east end of Long Island. 27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. And we are recording. Shots are being fired inside the Capitol chamber. This week has been quite a week. On uh, Wednesday, the 6th of January, both uh, Congress and the Senate were set to certify the election for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. And there was also a rally down the street at the White House that was led by Donald J. Trump. And some of his supporters were encouraged to head on down to the Capitol where they, of course, stormed the Capitol building. And things got very tense. Several of the individuals got inside, and all of the legislators had to be evacuated, and it was quite a tense day. No pictures. Shots are being fired inside the Capitol chambers. Most people have evacuated. Congressman Tom Swazi, a Long Island congressman from west of here, and he recorded some pretty incredible audio and video of being in the um, chambers when the riots broke out. So that's what we have here. I feel surprisingly calm. All right, here we are, 2021. Is it what everybody thought it would be? <laughs> we're sort of jumping in with two feet, aren't we? And of course, it's only, what, day seven, and we're already hearing rumors of the 25th Amendment and possible second impeachment of uh, President Donald J. Trump. So back with us in the first of the year is Bill Sutton, manning the controls. Hey, Bill. Hi, Annette. I'm Bill Sutton. I'm the managing editor of the Express News Group. And we also have Brendan O'Reilly. Hi, Brendan. Hi, Annette. I'm Brendan O'Reilly. I'm the features editor. And we have Catherine Manu. Hi, Georgie. Hey, Annette. I'm Catherine Manu, sometimes known as Georgie, and I am the co-publisher of the Express News Group. And we have Joe Shaw. Hey, Joe. Hey, Annette. Joe Shaw, executive editor of the Express News Group. And I'm Annette Hinkle, and I am the arts and living editor of the Express News Group. And then also with us today, we have Tim Bishop. And um, Tim, of course, was our congressman for the first congressional district prior to our current congressman, Lee Zeldin, who had a fairly large role down in DC this um, this week, and that's what we're going to talk about. So if um, if you all would like to jump in, we can start the discussion. Yeah, Tim, I, I can get us started. And I do want to mention right up front that we did reach out to Representative Lee Zeldin to participate in the podcast today, but uh, we didn't get a response despite a couple of efforts to, to line him up. So uh, we did want to hear firsthand from Representative Zeldin. But but Tim, thanks for being with us to talk about this. My first thought in talking with you is about your reaction to what you saw yesterday, since, since that's obviously hallowed ground for you. You spent a lot of time in uh, the Capitol, and I suspect this whole incident yesterday must have been particularly jarring for you. Uh, It was deeply, deeply unsettling, and I don't know that that's a sufficient description for um, 
what occurred and what I, and I'm sure uh, tens of thousands of others were, were feeling observing uh, the anarchy that was taking place. And for me, it had a, I mean, it had a personal dimension. I mean, that door uh, that was barricaded uh, with um, members of the Capitol Police pointing guns at the broken windows and I guess rioters behind those windows. I mean, that's a door I'm sure I've walked through hundreds of times. It's the door that the president walks through uh, when he enters the chamber to deliver the State of the Union address. And the fact that it was our president who fomented that riot uh, is, words fail me uh, to, uh, to um, be able to describe you know, what that means for our country. But the fact that the president and his two sons and his attorney, if that's what he is, um, uh, actively and openly encourage this kind of violence in the service of denying the results of a democratically conducted election and attempting to take over the Capitol so that members of the House and the Senate would be prevented from undertaking their constitutionally mandated responsibilities. All of this is a collection of words, a collection of sentences that I never thought I would utter in describing an incident that took place in Washington, DC. I have audio here of um, Rudy Giuliani basically telling the protesters at the Trump rally, trial by combat. Go to jail. So let's have trial by combat. Maybe some other country, not as well developed as ours, not as revered as ours. But let me tell you, if that's American exceptionalism, I don't want any part of it. And all we hear about uh, from our friends on the other side of the aisle is American exceptionalism. Well, if it comes to this, if this is what uh, Make America Great Again is about, if this is about, um, you know, uh, what uh, nationalism is about, I want no part of it. And I don't know any fair-minded person could. I think seeing uh, the door to the chamber barricaded and the windows broken and guns being pointed out is a pretty stunning image. I mean, we're only seven days into the new year, and I think there's going to be a very difficult, it's going to be a tough image to, to match this year for photo of the year. It was just, it was stunning to see that yesterday. Tim, do you still stay in touch with some of your four, former colleagues who were, who were in the building at the time? And have you spoken with anybody? The only person I've been in touch with since, I, yes, I do stay in touch with some of my colleagues, but most, former colleagues, but most of the uh, members that I stay in touch with are also people who are no longer there. I mean, I'm in, I'm in touch with people like Steve Israel, Joe Crowley, uh, a, a Republican that was a dear friend of mine from, or is a dear friend of mine from South Carolina, uh, a man named Gresham Barrett. Um, <clears throat> but but uh, I have not, I mean, I stay in touch a little bit with Adam Schiff, uh, but you know, I, I, the only person I've been in touch with since yesterday afternoon was Steve Israel. I wonder what his thoughts were, you know, what, what did he have to say about everything? Uh, pretty much the same as what I just said. I mean, we're both, we were both stunned. We were both deeply saddened. Uh, we were both outraged. 
And uh, we both thought that we would never see this kind of behavior in the symbol of our democracy. The House, I mean, the, the, the capital of the United States is the symbol of our democracy. And it's a democracy that presumably we revere. Uh, and the fact that thousands and thousands of followers were deluded into thinking they were doing something patriotic and that the source of their delusion were the words of the president of the United States and his supporters is so, so troubling. And it speaks to, I mean, here we are at the, the very end of his presidency, but it speaks to how spectacularly ill-suited he is and has been for the job he's had for the last four years. As a nation, do we ever come back from this? Have we lost a level even after the president leaves in two weeks and we have a new administration and a, and a new Senate majority and, and all that? Can, can we ever come back? I think coming back is going to be exceptionally difficult, uh, but I think we will come back. I think it, it, I think, frankly, forgive me if I'm being Pollyanna-ish, I thought a little bit of that started last night. I, I thought when I listened to Jim Langford, uh, for example, last night, who was going to be part of the so-called sedition caucus uh, and changed his mind. And Marsha Blackburn, who God knows I served with her, no one's gonna call her a rhino. Uh, I mean, uh, that, that she changed her mind. And Kelly Loeffler, you know, who had just been beaten convincingly in Georgia, that she changed her mind. I think there was, that was the beginning of a recognition that this has all gone too far. And that I think that was the beginning of a recognition, at least for people like Jim Langford, who I served with for a couple of years. And I mean, we didn't agree on much of anything at all, but I always held him in pretty high regard. I think they're beginning to recognize that they own part of this, that, that the, their, their silence, it was, you know, helped enable uh, the basically the complete and total takeover of the Republican Party by Donald Trump, um, and that they're seeing the fruits of that, and they don't like the fruits of that, and they are beginning to recognize that they have to own not just the problem, but that they have to own the solution. Like I said, maybe I'm being Pollyannish, maybe I'm attaching too much significance to one, you know, floor speech on the part of a handful of Republicans. But, you know, you see people like Mitt Romney. I mean, Mitt Romney to me has been a beacon of hope. Uh, the way he has conducted himself really uh, since the impeachment, you know, at the beginning of the year. Uh, but the way he has gone forward, somebody like Adam Kinzinger, who has is speaking truth to power. And Adam Kinzinger, I, and, and I served with him, and I always held him in high regard. And again, there's not a whole hell of a lot we have in common politically. Um, but he said something I thought very powerful yesterday. He said that leadership is about honesty. And, and, and that it is not, it is a sign of cowardice that if your leaders are afraid to be honest with you. And, and that is so true and so powerful because what happened yesterday, forgive me if I'm talking too much, but I mean, that passion 
that we saw that manifested itself in the chaos and the destruction and the anarchy that took place in the Capitol, that passion was rooted in a lie. And, and that lie was repeated over and over and over again, starting on around the 7th of November. And, and um, it's because the author of that lie, Donald Trump, doesn't have the character or the will or the strength to face up to the fact that he owes the American people the truth. And so those rioters marched up, uh, whatever it was, Pennsylvania Avenue, Constitution Avenue, I don't know which one they took to get up there, Independence Avenue, um, and they thought they were on a mission um, that was that was sanctioned by the President of the United States, and they thought they were going to do something patriotic, which was stop the steal. And it was a lie. It was a lie. And those members who voted last night to not see or to not recognize the Arizona electors and to not recognize the Pennsylvania electors, they gave credence to that lie. And after seeing everything that they saw uh, that took place yesterday afternoon, that they could still find it within themselves to say, you know what, you guys are right. This election was stolen and we're going to set it right. That to me is utterly inexplicable and utterly irresponsible. And of course, our own congressman was one of those individuals. And that's obviously one of the reasons we're here. But the board and the courts refused to help at all to let the state Senate complete its constitutional duties. In Pennsylvania, where state legislators wrote us about their powers being usurped, the Democrat majority on the state Supreme Court change signature, signature matching. And yeah, and I, I wanted to required. actually explore that with you, Tim, because one of the things we've talked about is that the first district in the House is a really diverse district. It's got a very wide range of opinions among the electorate. And that's shown by the fact that you, who were a fairly liberal Democrat, served for, for several terms before Mr. Zeldin, now who's just won re-election to a fourth term. It swings back and forth. But this is very clearly a, a district that has a deep divide in it as far as that goes. But we are now being represented in Congress by someone who is really on the front lines of Trumpism right now. Yeah. Uh, and he's obviously been a cow. Now, look, one of two things is going on. Either he is, you know, is a true believer that he truly believes that the Donald Trump vision for this country, the autocratic uh, nationalistic, divisive, hateful vision that Donald Trump represents every single day, almost every single time he opens his mouth, he either truly believes that that's the appropriate posture for the president of the United States to take. That's one op option, and I don't know whether that's the case or not. And the other is that he's making uh, a, a political calculation that 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 um, his political fortunes will be improved uh, by aligning with the president as opposed to uh, to, you know, taking issue with the president. I mean, that's clearly what was going on with Josh Hawley and, and Ted Cruz. I mean, clearly this was the first act in the 2024 presidential campaign for those two guys. Um, and and um, uh, you know, so whether or not, I, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I simply don't know 
what Congressman Zeldin's motivation is, because Trumpism is not conservatism. Trumpism is not Republicanism. It's Trumpism. And, and here's the thing that I just want someone to explain to me. If there is a cogent, cohesive political core to Trumpism, I say if, because I'm not entirely sure there is, but if there is, it's populism, right? And so what is at the core of populism? At the core of populism is a distrust of elites and this concern that it's the elites that are telling us common folk how to do things, right? So tell me, and I'm not, this is a rhetorical question, what could possibly be more elitist than a handful of people in Washington, D.C., telling the people of Arizona and telling the people of Pennsylvania, look, look, you made a big mistake here. We understand that you voted for Donald Trump or you, that you meant to vote for Donald Trump. And really, you want Donald Trump to be your president. And somehow it didn't work out that way. But let us, the smart guys in Washington, D.C., let us fix that for you. That's populism. That's elitism if there ever was a manifestation of elitism. So I don't get it. And and if it, you know, look, every Republican, not every, 99.9% of the yes, Republicans, what they stand for, it's very simple. They stand for small government, um, absence of regulation, particularly in business. They stand for low taxes and they strong for, stand for strong national defense. So there's something else going on here. What do you see as the future and the immediate future of the Republican Party? And I thought it was interesting that you commented on some of the posturing from this week being designed to get the ball rolling on the next presidential race. But having been in Washington, there's obviously going to be a, a quick and sharp break in the Republican Party right now. How do they move forward? Well, they're going to have to decide. And, and I, like I said, I think we might, maybe, maybe saw the beginning of that last night. Um, I mean, Kathy McMorris Rogers, I served with her. Uh, I always found her to be a reasonable person. Again, we didn't have much in common in terms of how we viewed issues, but she changed her mind. She was going to vote to reject those two uh, elect slates of electors, and she changed her mind. Now, she was, I think, fourth ranking Republican in the House for, for years. Um, so, I mean, look at Liz Cheney. I mean, Liz Cheney, no one's going to accuse her of being a squish. You know, I mean, she's she <laughs> she is a rhino. And listen to what she said. You know, so they have a choice to make. Are they going to become the Republican Party again? Or are they going to continue to worship at the altar of, of Donald Trump, who frankly is a failed politician? Just look at where we've gone. Four years ago, on January 20th, 2017, the Republican Party had the White House, they had the House and the Senate. And on January 20th, 2021, they got none of that. They've lost all three levers of power in Washington on, during the reign of Donald J. Trump. So what has Trumpism actually gotten them? I'll tell you what it's gotten. It's gotten them sidelined into the minority. I gotta tell you, Tim, my reaction to the whole thing uh, was a little counterintuitive, but it was horrific and a tragedy 
and shouldn't have happened. But I think the wheels began turning four years ago on this. And I think it was a necessary thing to happen to bring some clarity. I feel like there's clarity now, and this has been subtext for four years, but now it's right there in the open and it's time for politicians in particular to make a decision. And, and I think that's the kind of thing that requires a shock to the system to happen. And I feel like in, in the broader sense, this is going to be a healthy thing that happened because I don't think this would have ended any, any other way. Um, I don't know that it's going to end now, but there's at least a chance now, I think, that that this ugly chapter is, is going to be over because I think it's this yesterday, I just think horrified so many people across political divides. I, I agree. And, and look, those those thugs who invaded the Capitol, I mean, they may have thought they were doing the Lord's work, but they overplayed their hand big time. I mean, they lost support. You know, I mean, they kept the dead enders like Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley, but they lost support. Um, and so maybe that was the, the beginning of the fever breaking, maybe, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm an optimistic person. I would like to think that the Republican party can begin to reconstitute itself around people like Mitt Romney, around people like Rob Portman in the house, around people like Adam Kinzinger, who, I mean, no one is ever going to accuse those people of being anything other than conservative. They are conservative, but they are not angry and they are not dismissive of those who think differently from them. Take a 30,000 foot view of what's going on. They only challenged the six states where they thought Trump should win, but Biden won. And they had an opportunity on Sunday night. Uh, to vote for a in those states. And only two Republicans voted for Chip Roy's legislation. Okay. So what does that tell you? That tells you that elections are only to be challenged if Republicans lose them. And that's because their opposition, Democrats, are illegitimate. They don't deserve to win, except in, you know, places like New York, you know, quiche eating, you know, latte drinking, Prius driving precincts like New York. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let the Dems win those. But in real America, only Republicans win because they're expected to win. But no, when a Democrat wins, then it's got to be illegit. It's got to be challenged. Now, that's their mindset. That is not Mitt Romney's mindset. That's not Rob Portman's mindset. I don't think after last night, it's Jim Langford's mindset. It isn't Adam Kinzinger's mindset. So that, that I think, represents perhaps something that can be built upon. Local support comes from the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Cordoraro. In these trying times, working full-time for their clients and the public interest, providing strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com Can I ask you a question uh, that's more logistical than political? Sure. So one of the things that really shocked me was that we have had much larger demonstrations in Washington, D.C., in front of the Capitol building 
nobody ever broke in like that. Like, we, you know, we've seen videos of protesters um, shouting outside Congress people's offices. Uh, we've seen people in the gallery start shouting and hanging banners. Uh, we've seen disruptions before. We've seen disruptions at the State of the Union. We've never seen anything like this before. And I think that most of us assume security was better, whether it be, you know, Capitol Hill security, Capitol Police. Uh, how did it get to the point where we have the National Guard rolling in hours later? Do we really need the National Guard on on a Wednesday to fix something like this for us? Did you ever feel unsafe in the building? Never. Never. And let me let me try to answer that because I've given this a lot of thought. Up until about 1.30 or 2 o'clock yesterday afternoon, if someone had asked me to give the Capitol Police a grade based on my 12 years there and since then dealing with them, I would have given them an A. I thought they were phenomenal. So I am just at a loss to explain how it is that they were so spectacularly underprepared for what happened. Everybody knew that was coming. I mean, and look, I'm not Nostradamus, okay? But I had a conversation with my younger brother at eight o'clock yesterday morning saying, I'm afraid somebody's gonna die in Washington DC today on Capitol Hill. And sadly, I turned out to be right. Now, if I'm thinking that, why isn't the head of the Capitol Police thinking that? Why isn't the Sergeant at Arms thinking that? So I don't understand, I cannot begin to explain why they were so ill-prepared, so understaffed. I mean, they were physically overwhelmed, you know? Um, the, the only other time where I felt the Capitol was under siege was the weekend in early March of 2010. I don't remember the exact date uh, when, when we passed the Affordable Care Act. And the, the, the Hill was awash in tea partiers who were everywhere. Uh, and they, um, they were walking through the House office buildings and the Senate office buildings. They were accosting members as they walked you know, the halls. They were just barging into offices. It's really interesting, Tim. That that was really the roots of this, isn't it? Yes. Yes. You were there for for the earliest days of what this really manifested. Yeah. Um, yeah. Even earlier than that, I had the first, you know, ingloriously, I had the first town hall meeting in the country that was disrupted by the Tea Party in June of 2009. Um, but let me let me, if I may, let me just go back. I don't think any of us felt that violence was a possibility. I mean, one African-American member was spit upon uh, by a Tea Party person as he was walking over to the Capitol to vote. And, you know, racial epithets were, were passed. But I, I, I don't think any of us felt that we were about to be attacked. There was no effort to, in effect, storm the Capitol and get in. And, you know, they stayed outside. They were unruly, but they stayed outside. Um, you know, clearly the people yesterday were on a mission. They were going to get in. And not only were they going to get in, they were going to disrupt what was happening in there because they were on a mission. And their mission was to stop the steal because they had been told by their leader that they revere that he had won in a landslide. Everybody knew it, but some evil cabal was stealing it from them. Tim, let me ask you this. Annette mentioned early on 
as we started this conversation that there's a lot of things taking place. I mean, it's obviously a very fast moving story. And today, which was Thursday, um, we are, we're hearing conversations and calls across government for the 25th Amendment to, to be invoked. Uh, there's calls for articles of impeachment to be introduced. Let me ask you a, a question from your background, and it's been a while since you've been in Congress, and I would hesitate to say that, that it's the same kind of dynamic there that it was when you were there necessarily. It may have evolved a bit since then, but how are those conversations taking place in the halls of Congress now? Are, are, are Democrats and Republicans so divided that they won't discuss this? Are these the kinds of conversations that take place behind closed doors, among, you know, between the parties? Tell us a little bit more about that dynamic that we don't see in Congress. Yeah, I, I'm not sure I can speak with any degree of authority with respect to how those conversations happen now. Uh, I will guess that they are not happening across the aisle, that the 25th Amendment type conversations are happening in, in Democratic gatherings, perhaps Republican gatherings, because there's a number of Republicans that are outraged and a number of Republicans that are frankly scared as to what this president could do in the next 13 days. But it, I, I, I can't imagine uh, you know, that Leader Pelosi or Speaker Pelosi is sitting down with Leader McCarthy and say, how are we going to make this happen? I don't see that happening at all. Did those conversations take place in cloakrooms and back channels and things, though, when even on hot topics that, that, that were divisive? Sometimes, sometimes, yes. Um, you know, but there are certain issues on which a back and forth is simply not possible. The ACA. I mean, there was simply no possibility that Republicans were going to break ranks. No possibility whatsoever. There was when we did uh, the, the so-called Wall Street bailout, when we did uh, uh, what's formerly called TARP, the Troubled Asset Relief Program, in the, um, whenever that was, the fall of 08. Uh, there were conversations across the aisle and there was a bipartisan effort because remember at that time, uh, uh, President Bush uh, was in the final days of his presidency. And so he was coming to the Congress saying, look guys, I need this. So there were bipartisan conversations taking place then. Um, but the level of bipartisanship on really, really hot, button issues like impeachment, like the 25th Amendment, like the ACA, virtually non-existent, vir virtually non-existent. And I mean, really the 25th Amendment, Congress doesn't really even have a role. I mean, it's gotta be initiated by the vice president and the cabinet. Um, and, you know, I heard what Speaker Pelosi said earlier today. I mean, uh, I mean, you know, you know, look, Vice President Pence definitely walked off the reservation yesterday. I mean, he uh, he definitely uh, you know drew a line in the sand for himself and told President Trump that he wasn't going to cross it, and that has infuriated President Trump. Whether he's willing to keep, you know, whether he's going to continue to you know rupture the breach between the two of them, and call for the 25th Amendment. I, I, I find it awfully hard to believe that he'll do that, uh, but I don't know. I, I don't know.
It seems to me if the cabinet members continue to resign, you're on a much stronger path to something major like that. Well, perhaps? yes and no. So it does seem like Trump is increasingly isolated, which is, um, I think, what the next thing we're looking at. Yes. And, and unfortunately, the people he's isolated with are basically servile and sycophants. Uh, and so um, I, I don't know if there's, I mean, maybe the White House counsel uh, is, is, is somebody that the president would, you know, it will, will speak truth to power with the president. He certainly isn't getting it from Mark Meadows. I can't imagine that he's getting it from Jared or Ivanka. Um, you know, but, but now Secretary Chow has resigned, as I understand it, effective January 11th. So one of the things, it, it's a, it can cut both ways. If people are going to walk, but give themselves some time before they walk, then they can participate in the 25th Amendment. If they walk and then they're replaced by a handpicked person, uh, you know, by, by President Trump or Mark Meadows, uh, then they're not going to participate in the 25th Amendment. And you need half the cabinet, you know. So my own view is that we've got 13 days left. Uh, I, I find it inconceivable uh, that an impeachment process can work its way through the House uh, in in 13 days. Um, I, I, I think that I find it hard to believe that the Senate would even take it up. You know, I mean, I, you know, just the timing of it. So I think it's fasten your seatbelt time. We are just going to have to hope that the president will realize that he's gone way, way too far. Uh, and that the stakes are pretty damn high, or people around him will convince him of that. But I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm very fearful of what the next 12 days left. Here's here's a prediction, though. Okay, I kept hearing this afternoon about how the FBI and the Department of Justice and the Metropolitan Police and the Capitol Police are identifying suspects and are going to bring charges against. Uh, the thugs who invaded the Capitol yesterday. Anywhere you want to bet how many pardons that group gets? I read something today about the possibility of a group pardon. Uh, that's something that they've been exploring before. So now that you're looking at the Dems controlling um, all the houses going forward as of January 20th, is there anything that you see that's happened in the last four years with the rise of Trump and Trumpism that maybe where the founding fathers could never have envisioned something like this, like anything that should be looked at in, in order to perhaps prevent somebody or someone like this in the future um, from really gaining gaining hold? Because I, I just keep I kept thinking, what are the founding fathers? What would they think of, of all of this insanity that's going on? And and where, you know, where is Trump been able to drive a Mack truck through democracy? The two things, and, and it's not necessarily dragging driving a Mack truck through democracy. It is taking advantage of the powers of the executive office. I think the two most prominent, clearly number one is the judiciary. We will be seeing the implications of the Trump presidency for decades in the judiciary and not just the Supreme Court at every level. Something like 240 or 250 judges have been appointed in the Trump presidency, partly because uh, Mitch McConnell did an absolutely excellent job of refusing to process the uh, uh, nominations for to the judiciary from the Obama administration. So there was a pretty big backlog um, that then got, you know, 
uh, re, you know, people were nominated to replace the ones that were an active one. Uh, and I think the other is in regulation. Um, I, and I'm a little embarrassed to admit this, but I never fully understood the power <clears throat> that the president had to unilaterally impose regulations on executive branch departments that were not authorized by Congress. I, I, and, um, and, and every possible area, primarily in the environment and in immigration, where there was the potential for presidential discretion in terms of imposing regulations, uh, eliminating regulations, tweaking regulations. I think the, the president and the people around him did a, an incredible job, and I'm not saying this with admiration, uh, but they did an incredible job of bending the executive branch to their will. I don't know that this answers your question and that directly, but what Trump did more than anything else is he imposed an alternate reality on the country. And his method of operation was to basically lie and then repeat the lie and then repeat the lie and over and over and over. And pretty soon you start thinking that the lie was delivered to us on stone tablets. You know, I mean, so I just don't understand how fair-minded people can assign an ounce of credibility to anything he says. He, he lies even when it hurts him. He, you know, he, he it's like a, a reflex that, so, and yet there are people lapping it up and I, I don't get it. I mean, I just don't get it. I have one last question. You've sat in the seat that Lee Zeldin is sitting in now. We as constituents who might disagree with the positions he's taking. What are some, some real world things that the constituents can do to voice their unhappiness about this? Well, I mean, that's a very good question because one of the basic activities of a member of Congress, as best as I can tell, Congressman Zeldin simply doesn't engage in, and that's open town hall meetings. I mean, his town hall meetings either don't exist or are carefully scripted and the, the you know, people come by invitation only. Am I right about this? And then that, in, you know, that, that the president, that the questions have to be pre-screened. You know, I, I did hundreds of town hall meetings that were just free-for-alls, you know? And so people, God knows, people had an opportunity to tell me what they thought. And so I, I have a very, a very clear understanding of my shortcomings, you know, uh, from, um, uh, you know, doing it for as long as I did. But the most profound way that constituents can pass judgment on a, a member of Congress is how they vote. I, I don't know this uh, firsthand. It was repeated to, repeated to me. So someone, I may be wrong, but a friend of mine said they got a, a survey from Lee asking how he should vote on whether or not to accept the slate of electors from these states. Now, that looks like democracy, right? That looks like consulting your constituents. But good Lord, if you have to ask your constituents whether or not you should honor someone's vote, I mean, what, what, what does that say? This is my problem with that as well. So there are six of us here who are all within the first district. Did any of us get that 
solicitation? I, I didn't get a solicitation for my opinion. I, I certainly didn't. My wife didn't. My daughters didn't. You know. Regarding the survey, it does in fact exist. Your sources were correct. It was sent out on December 30th, if not earlier, uh, from the office of Congressman Zeldin. It is on iqconnect.house.gov. Uh, I guess that's a federal government method for constituent surveys. And it states, do you believe members of Congress on January 6th should object and debate 2020 presidential election issues that have been raised in a variety of battleground states? Yes, no, undecided. So, I mean, I, I think that, that there's an argument to be made that a representative asking his constituents for their opinions is, is at least defensible, but you have to ask everybody. And, and if, that's not, if that's not happening, I think it feeds the, the, mis, the, the miscommunications. Tim, does calling, does calling the congressman's office make a difference? Does it, does, is it even worth the effort? Yes, I think it's worth the effort. Um, I mean, you know, one, one of the things I used to do was I, I called it community office hours. But for, let me answer your question first. Yes, it makes a difference. And particularly if you can get to speak to the congressman, I used to schedule times where I was available to talk to anyone who called. You know, uh, that was interesting also. Uh, but but I also used to do these community office hours where I would tell people, you know, I'm, I'm going to be at, you know, the community room of the Bridgehampton National Bank uh, Saturday afternoon from one to four. You want to make an appointment? Come and see me. I had no idea what was going to walk in the door. None. Um, but, you know, I would see people, whatever, at, you know, in 15 minute increments, how many people would I see over three hours? I'd see, you know, 18 or 20 people. Right. So um, I would do things like that all over the district. Was that a different time, though? I mean, I, I think there's there's so much now anger and 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 um and rage even and and i don't know that that and and, and <clears throat> maybe on both sides no i think it's a point well made bill and i feel that the district i represented and worked in and for for 12 years is a different district than the one that exists now i would have never described the district as angry until after the election of president obama that was the sea change but it is a different time people are angry there isn't the opportunity for reasoned discussion. Again, my historical perspective isn't that deep, but I see that as having started with the rise of the Tea Party. I don't think Donald Trump caused it. I think Donald Trump was the logical outgrowth uh, of the Tea Party. And then I think Donald Trump took that anger and uh, turned it into an art form. You know, I mean, that he raised the level of of uh, you know several orders of magnitude of anger and divisiveness and and you know blaming the other. My question is: so even if some of the members of the House and the Senate have seen the light and have sort of turned away from Trump, what happens to all those followers who still think that this election was stolen and are so far gone that they will never believe the truth? Uh, that's an excellent question, and I don't know the answer. The only thing I can say that might make us all feel a little bit better is that they are in the minority, decidedly in the minority. Remember, we just won, we Dems, just won two Senate seats in Georgia. You know, I mean, um, we, we, we have the majority in the House. We have the majority in the Senate. We have the White House. So Trumpism as a political movement has failed. Um, and, uh, now 
Somebody would re quite reasonably can say, yeah, but wait till the 2022 midterms. The party in power in the White House always loses seats in the midterm. Yes, that could happen. But right now, um, I won't say Trumpism is in disarray or in retreat, but it is absolutely a minority movement in this country. And hopefully as time passes, it will become even more of a minority movement. It's been an amazing 48 hours and it's been an amazing four years really. And it's like drinking from a fire hose anymore, isn't it? Just, just everything. And, and we had the biggest day ever for COVID hospitalizations, I think yesterday as well. And Tim, we very much appreciate your time and trying to put some of this into some context. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, thanks for your insights. Yesterday, the President of the United States incited an armed insurrection against America. The gleeful desecration of the U.S. Capitol, which is the temple of of our American democracy, and the violence targeting Congress are horrors that will forever stain our nation's history, instigated by the President of the United States. That's why it's such a stain. In calling for this seditious act, the President has committed an unspeakable assault on our nation and our people. I join the Senate Democratic leader in calling on the Vice President to remove this President by immediately invoking the 25th Amendment. If the vice president and the cabinet do not act, the Congress may be prepared to move forward with impeachment. That is the overwhelming sentiment of my caucus. Twenty Seven Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com Thank you for listening. Join us again next week to hear what's news on the East End. Our interlude flute music is by Allison O'Reilly. Our opening and closing theme music is Boysdale Blues, written and performed by the incomparable Judy Carmichael. Listen to Judy's weekly show, Jazz Inspired, airing on an NPR station near you, or go to jazzinspired.com. 27 Speaks is a weekly podcast produced by the Express News Group, which includes the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, 27east.com, and sacharborexpress.com Find us on the websites or subscribe through Apple Podcasts.